Good to see you all tonight. Thank you for coming to uh, meet together tonight and to pray together and to study the word. And I hope tonight is a blessing and encouragement to you. Uh, Let's pray before the Lord together and just ask him to bless our meeting tonight. Let's bow together. Father of grace, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us that we certainly do not deserve. We thank you, Father, for uh, just the opportunity to come together and meet tonight as your people. Uh, Lord, I pray your blessings on us individually and on our individual families during this time, that uh, you would keep us healthy, uh, protect our church family. Pray that you'd watch over our community. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you would uh, minimize uh, the effects, the influence of this uh, coronavirus that's spreading around. Lord, we pray for a quick end to it. Uh, We pray for just wisdom for our leaders uh, to and medical professionals to know the best way to uh, to handle it and to to benefit uh, people uh, people's health and their lives and uh, Lord we just pray that you would watch over our church family especially during this time uh, we thank you Lord that we can come together and that we can meet and study your word and uh, we thank you Lord that we have a way to come before your throne of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ Lord bless this time may your name be exalted and glorified in it and we pray this in the name of Christ Amen. Well, last week we finished up our study of the book of Ruth, and I'm not yet yet ready to launch into another series, and so I might just jump around for a couple of weeks until uh, maybe until around the time that school starts, and then we'll maybe get into a new series then. Um, but tonight I wanted to look with you at the book of Second Thessalonians, and a passage that caught my attention this week. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 17. And uh, this, is, uh, this is Paul uh, encouraging the Thessalonian Christians. And one of the things that he is exhorting them to do, he's strongly encouraging them to stand firm. And this is a time, I, I just thought about what Paul was saying in light of current events. Not only just with COVID coronavirus that's going around, but even more importantly, just with the attacks on the faith, attacks on the gospel that are coming from all directions. Um, Just in a very general sense, uh, our whole culture and the very foundational ideals and principles of our culture are under attack right now. And you might think, well, is that such a bad thing? Well, It is when you consider the fact that a lot of the founding, uh, guiding, underlying principles of our culture are very influenced by Christianity. So for, for those underlying principles, those foundational things to be attacked is also an attack on Christianity. Uh, For example, um, I don't know if you've been paying attention at all to some of the news that's been going on recently, just all the division and the riots and um, protests and everything that's going on over the concept of race in our country and racial division, uh, racism. But one of the things that's growing in popularity right now amongst a kind of a leftward leaning progressive element of our culture is uh, basically that uh, if you are white, you're part of the problem. And uh, so that it kind of basically lays a, a blanket cover, uh, you know, indictment 
on everyone and lumps everyone into the same group and says, if you're white, you're, you're part of the problem without taking into account individual responsibility, individual actions, attitudes at all. And one of the things that I saw recently is that um, there was a chart. This is actually put out uh, by one of the Smithsonian Institutes. And it had a chart on there of what they called elements of whiteness. And one of the elements of whiteness was an emphasis on the nuclear family. And you know what that means, the nuclear family. A nuclear family is a father, a mother, and children in a household. And so what they were saying is that's, that's an element of whiteness and white culture. Well, that's a narrative that they've been spinning for a while now, but the problem is, is that it's not a narrative, it's not an element of white culture, it's a narrative of biblical teaching, isn't it? It's a, it's a part of biblical teaching. What did God make in the beginning? God made a man, he made a woman, and he told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the whole pattern that you see throughout scripture is a husband, a wife, and their children in a household. And so that's, a, that's an element of biblical teaching. It's not a matter of whiteness at all. Um, there are people in Africa right now, Christians in Africa who hold to the value of a husband and a wife and children and the importance of the cohesiveness of that family unit. They hold to that because they're Christians, because that's an important aspect of biblical teaching. Uh, On this chart, I also saw another element of whiteness is a hard work ethic. No, that's biblical teaching. Paul says in Thessalonians that if you don't work, then you shouldn't eat. So a part of a, a hard work ethic comes from Protestantism, comes from biblical teaching, comes from Christianity. So by attacking what they call certain elements of whiteness, they're actually attacking biblical foundational ideas that are essential to our faith as Christians. And so we, we are in a time, we're in a moment where as the church, we have to know what the Bible teaches. We have to know what the gospel is and we have to stand firm on it because we're being attacked from all kinds of different directions. And it's not just worldly philosophies, but it's worldliness, a love for the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's the devil and his temptations, it's persecution. There are many, many things that can seek to uh, attack us, attack our faith. And so it's incredibly important for us to stand firm and to hold tightly to the gospel. And that's what Paul is encouraging these Thessalonian Christians to do in this passage. It's a very short passage, five verses, but it is incredibly loaded with truth. And we could probably spend the whole evening just on verse 13. And we might. (laughs) We'll, We'll see how far we get. But let's look at this short passage together. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, 
because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. If I were to break down these five verses into three main headings, it is essentially a thanksgiving, an exhortation, and a prayer. So there's a thanksgiving in verses 13 and 14 in which he's thanking God for what he's done for the Thessalonian Christians. In verse 15, he's exhorting them, challenging them, encouraging them to stand firm. And in verses 16 and 17, he asks God to do things for them. It's a prayer wish. So there's a, there's a thanksgiving, there is an exhortation, and there is a prayer. And so in verses 13 and 14, there is thanksgiving. And what is Paul thankful for? He's thankful for the faith of these Thessalonian believers. He's thankful that they are Christians. And he's thankful that they're Christians He's thankful not to them. He's thankful to God. Why is he thankful to God? It's because God is the one who saved them. And he puts emphasis in verses 13 and 14 on God's initiative, on God's work of loving, of choosing, of calling these Thessalonian believers and making them a part of the family of God. He's thankful for that. So he says in verse 13, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. I think it's important for us as we read through verses 13 through 17 and try to think about what Paul is saying here, to think about it in the context of the larger letter of 2 Thessalonians, especially in chapter 2. What is, what's one of Paul's concerns in this letter to the Thessalonians? One of, the, one of his concerns is that the Thessalonian believers are being influenced by false reports, false teachings, uh, people claiming that the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, had already happened. You read the earlier part of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and Paul says to them, I don't want you to be concerned. I don't want you to be anxious. I don't want you to be worried about reports that you may have heard that the, the day of the Lord has already come. Because, and then he goes through and explains, here's why the day of the Lord has not yet come. And he explains the importance of the revealing of the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, and the, the, the defeat of this man of lawlessness, man of sin, at the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. So he's writing to encourage them, to uh, strengthen them and reassure them that they haven't missed anything important in terms of God's saving program. The day of the Lord hasn't come yet. 
And so he wants to build a wall of defense for them against false teaching that they were starting to be influenced by. And one of the things that he says toward the end of that first part of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is he talks about the end result, the, the destiny of those who disobey the gospel. And he says, of those who are not gods, of those who do not belong to God, they believe a lie. They believe a delusion. They believe the lies and the deceptions of this man of lawlessness, and they end up condemned. Now he says to these Thessalonian Christians, though, but we are thankful to God for you, brothers and sisters, because you are, that is not your destiny. You are not destined for destruction. You are not destined for wrath. You are not destined to be deceived by the man of lawlessness and go into eternal condemnation. No, we are thankful to God that your destiny is different. So there's a really a strong contrast in that opening word of verse 13. But we are thankful for you, brothers and sisters, that that does not describe you. You are loved by God. You are chosen by God. You are called by God. And so he is seeking to reaffirm them and ensure them that they are in fact God's children. And in that they can take hope, they can take comfort, and they can be encouraged and motivated to stand firm in that gospel because they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says at the beginning of verse 13, literally, I have an obligation. I'm bound to thank God for you. He considered it a, a strong obligation that, that he needed to praise and to thank God for what God had done for these Thessalonian Christians. And he calls them brothers and sisters. Why? Because they're part of the same family, aren't they? He calls them brethren. We're part of the same family of God. And he says, we're thankful to God for you because you are first loved by the Lord. You are loved by the Lord. And this is a love that is undeserved, isn't it? This is a love that is undeserved. This is a love that comes from God to us that we did not earn, that we were not worthy of. And probably a really good background passage to help understand what Paul is saying here is Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, where Moses says to the people of Israel, God did not choose you because you were great in number, because you were stronger or more mighty than all the other peoples. No, in fact, you were the smallest, you were the weakest. God chose you because he loved you. Moses says to the Israelites, God loved you because he loved you. And that's what Paul, Paul's theology is built on that same foundation. So when he says to these Thessalonian believers, you're loved by God, you're loved by God because God loved you for no other reason. No reason in yourself, no reason of anything that you've done, nothing that you even initiated and called out for. God loved you first. What did John say in 1 John? We love him because 
he first loved us. So he says, I thank God. I thank God for you because God loved you. He loved you. And he chose you. He chose you. Now, a lot of folks like to, they kind of bristle up whenever they come across the idea of choosing or election in the scriptures. But it's there. It's all over the place in the Bible. And whenever it's talked about, it's always talked about two Christians. It's always talked about two Christians and it's always meant to be an encouragement to them, a reassurance to them that they are in fact gods. And therefore, because they are gods and belong to him by his choice and by his action, it's not something that is shaky. It's not something they can lose. It's not something they have to be worried about because God is the one who did it and he did it in eternity past. And so it's always meant to encourage and to reassure and then to motivate them to live for God on the basis of that elective choice of God. And so God chose them again. Why? Because he loved them. Not because of anything that they had done. Paul says in Romans chapter nine, it's not because uh, Isaac was better than Esau, but simply because God chose the older was going to serve the younger. Before they were even born, before they had done anything, they were still in the womb. God said the older is going to serve the younger. So he chose in eternity past. And there is in verse number 13, the word first fruits. If you have a different Bible with you tonight, other than the NIV, if you have the, the King James, or if you have, I think the New American Standard Bible, um, there might be a couple other ones too, but it will say, instead of first fruits, it'll say from the beginning. God chose you from the beginning to be saved. Here's, a, here's just a short window into sometimes why there are differences between translations of the Bible. The issue in verse number 13 is over what the Greek word is. Is it op, our case, two words, a preposition and a, and a noun, or is it one word, op, arcane? Sound very similar, don't they? Op, arcase, or op, arcane. In Greek manuscripts, when they were first being copied in the early centuries after the apostles, they put them on papyrus, uh, which was very fragile. It was expensive. It was fragile. It, and it was costly. And so because it was costly, they sought to put as much on a sheet as they could, which includes no punctuation, no spacing between words. Everything jumped up close together. So where we can read a document and we can be helped in the understanding and interpretation of that document by spaces between words and by commas and periods and paragraph marks. The early Greek manuscripts had none of that. So there were no paragraph marks. There were no periods, no commas. In fact, they were all written in, written in capital letters. So there wasn't even a difference between capital and small letters. The words were jumped up right next to each other. And so the issue is, should there be a space between op and arcase, or should it be one word, op arcane? Op arcane means first fruits, but op arcase means 
from the beginning. And so those who look at Greek manuscripts, those who translate the Bible, have to make a decision. And so the King James, the New King James, uh, New American Standard Bible, uh, they have from the beginning. But some others, like the English Standard Version, the NIV, they have first fruits. You have to make a choice there of what is, what's the Greek reading there. So what would it mean either way? Well, if Paul was saying you are the first fruits to the Thessalonians, how would, how would he mean that? Well, that could be taken to be very encouraging because the idea of first fruits is God is doing a work among the Thessalonian people and you are the first to be saved out of that group of Thessalonian people. It almost reminds me of the time when Paul was discouraged and in Corinth and God came to him and said, Paul, be encouraged because I have many people in this city. So Paul going into Corinth to minister and on mission was discouraged because he wasn't seeing a lot of fruit yet, but God came to him to reassure him and said, I've got people here. You just haven't found them yet. And so by Paul telling these Thessalonian believers, you're of the first fruits, it could be an encouragement to them that God is still doing a work in them, through them, in their city, in their community, and there will be more to come. But I, I lean toward, I'm, I, I think the better way of understanding it is the way the King James does it, the New King James, is to see them as two separate words from the beginning. Because this fits very closely in with what Paul says in other places about God's elective choice of his people. So God's elective choice of his people is not something that God does in time based on what people do and responding to what people do. God's elective choice of people is from eternity past, from the beginning. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. That's his emphasis is God has loved you. God has chosen you from the beginning, from eternity past to be what? For what purpose? To be saved. To be saved. God's plan, his eternal purpose for you, brothers and sisters, from eternity past, is that you would be a believer in Christ, that you would be saved. And that saving, that word salvation, saved, is in direct contrast to just a couple of verses earlier of those who are deluded, of those who are deceived, of those who follow the man of lawlessness and are condemned. And they're not saved, they are lost and destroyed. But God says to these Thessalonian believers, God loved you. He chose you to be saved for salvation so that you are not numbered among those who will be deceived and lost. You will be saved. And notice he emphasizes not only what God did for them in eternity past in loving them and in choosing them by his electing grace, but he also mentions the means by which God brings them to himself in time. How does God do that? How does God take 
someone that he has set his eternal love on, his eternal choice on from the beginning of the world, how do they actually in time, in history, become a believer unto salvation? Paul says it's through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. That's how it happens. And so there is an element here of combination of two things. And I believe strongly that the scriptures teach this all over the Bible, especially the New Testament, that there are two essential ingredients for someone to become a believer in Christ and to accept Jesus, to believe in Jesus. What are those two essential elements? One is the word. What does Paul say in Romans 10? Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God, the message of Christ. So in order for someone to believe, they have to have something to believe, right? They have to have news, gospel good news proclaimed to them for them to receive and believe. So the word of God is essential, belief in the truth. But also what is essential for that to happen, belief in the truth, is for the Holy Spirit of God to come alongside the preached word and to open eyes, open ears, soften hearts, make good ground for the seed to fall in, in hearts, the the spirit and the word. And when those two come together in the sovereign grace of God, People believe and they are saved. And so God loves them. He chooses them, but also at a point in time, he draws them to himself through the preached word of the gospel and through the the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit who blows where he wants to blow and goes where he wants to go. When those two come together, the sanctifying work of the spirit and the belief in the truth, you are saved. You're a believer. You're a Christian. Sanctification is the idea of God setting someone apart, making them holy, making them his. And he does that through the ministry, the work of the Holy Spirit. He draws them to himself and he makes them his through the Spirit's work and through the proclamation of the gospel that is then believed in. Paul is thankful for that. And in verse 14, he goes on and he says, he called you to this. What is the this? I, I think it's everything in verse 13. Everything in verse 13. He loved you. He chose you to, to be saved through the sanctifying work of the spirit, through belief in the truth. All of that, he called you to it. He called you, summoned you to it. How? Through our gospel through our gospel. Again, there is an essential role that we have in the outworking of God's saving work in the world. And that essential role is to be a witness and a testimony to the gospel. That's why Paul says in Romans 10, how are they going to hear unless someone goes, unless someone is sent? How can they hear without a preacher? Someone has to go. Someone has to tell them. And so Paul sees here his incredibly important role in proclaiming the gospel 
And then God, through the Spirit, through his work alongside the gospel, calling them, calling them. And this is a call that is not a general call of whoever, whatever, we'll see what happens. But this is a, an effectual and a, a, a call that accomplishes what it sets out to do. It is, it is the idea of God saying, let there be light. And there was light. There are times when God calls with his voice and whatever he says happens, right? That's, that's what's going on here with this. This is an effectual call. It is the same kind of effectual call that Jesus had when he stood outside the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. That was an effectual call, wasn't it? He said it and it happened. His, his powerful word effected the outcome. God calls and people's hearts are awakened through the gospel. He called you to this, to this salvation through our gospel. Notice the end result now. Here's the purpose, the end goal that you might share, literally obtain in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is an astounding statement, isn't it? that the destiny that God has for each of his children is to be saved, not only in the here and now, but to be saved in the there and then and to receive glory. Salvation, salvation is a past, present, future doctrine, isn't it? Salvation runs the gamut from eternity past to eternity future. It goes all the way back into eternity past when God loved and chose and predestined. It runs all the way through history in the coming of Christ and his death and burial and resurrection. It runs through church history and God sending out his apostles and missionaries and calling people to be saved. It runs through the history of our lives when we heard the gospel and we believed and it runs all the way through the end of time and the return of Christ when God says, enter into the joy of my kingdom. And the glory that God has for us is Christ's. That, you can't even start to comprehend that, can you? I can't. What, what does that even mean? The glory of Christ we will have a part of that. Our inheritance that is reserved, laid up for us is essentially Christ's inheritance that we will partake of. The glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice this again is in direct contrast with the destiny of the people earlier in chapter two who will believe a lie. They'll believe a lie. They'll be deluded by this man of lawlessness unto their own not glory, but destruction. But for those of you who are in Christ, loved by God, chosen by him, your future destiny is glory. All of that, Paul's thanksgiving is so that he can exhort them then in verse 15 to stand. To stand firm and to hold tightly. Now, 
I said we might make it through verse 13. We actually made it to verse 14. All right. So I'm going to pause there and we will look at hopefully the rest of it next time. But I want us to think about this one thing as we wrap up our study tonight. Paul, why does Paul remind them of this in verses 13 and 14? And I think it's for this reason. In order for us to to work out, to do the things that God asks of us to do in this world, the foundation of that is an understanding of what God has already done. So in in the New Testament letters, especially the letters of Paul, there is a, a joining together of indicatives and imperatives. Do you know what I mean by that? Indicatives are just statements. It's a statement of truth, a statement of fact, a statement of reality, like God loved you. God chose you. God called you. Those are statements and indicatives of what God has already done. There is nothing that Paul is saying in verses 13 and 14 yet of what he has actually called us to do. It's all God. God loved you. God chose you. God called you. God sanctified you through the Spirit. That's the foundation on which then he can say in verse 15, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand firm and hold tightly to the truth. We have to know first as a foundation that we stand on God and his grace and on what he has already done. And it's that reassurance, it's that confidence, it's that encouragement that then gives us the hope, the the strength, the fuel, if you will, to stand firm and to hold tightly to the truth. So it, it it all starts with God, doesn't it? It starts with God and what he has already done. And it's on that that then Paul goes into, in many of his letters, therefore, Now, here's what I'm asking you to do. Here's what I'm exhorting you, challenging you to do. And so uh, I just want us tonight to just think about what God has done. Thankful. Paul is thankful for what God has done for the Thessalonian Christians. Has, can all of those statements, verses 13 and 14, can you say all of those things about yourself? I pray God that you can have that assurance of faith that that God has loved you from eternity past, that God has chosen you, that God has called you through the gospel, and that there is there has been the sanctifying work of the Spirit that has and continues to be ongoing in your life, and that there is belief, faith in the truth of the gospel. I pray that all of those things describe you because that is something with which we can be thankful for. So Paul is thankful to God for what he has done in these Thessalonian Christians. May we be encouraged and strengthened in that. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you for everything. We are thankful like Paul was thankful in this passage that we read and talked about tonight. We're thankful for what you have done for us. 
that we can hardly even begin to understand. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the concept of you loving us from the beginning of time. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the concept of of you desiring and calling us to be your children through nothing that we did, nothing that we earned, nothing that we could possibly contribute. Father, remind us daily, hour by hour, moment by moment, remind us that where we stand in the hope of the gospel is all because of you and your love and grace to us. And Lord, may that encourage and motivate us then to live as your people in the world. Thank you, Father, for your word and the encouragement that we can receive from it tonight. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.